I'm going to read out of Acts. Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Our God, give us ears to hear your word this morning. We pray for you to send your Holy Spirit to open us up to your word. We pray this in the name of Christ, crucified, risen, exalted. Amen. Every compelling story is driven by conflict. Conflict is one of those basic pieces of a plot that if it's not there, we have no reason to continue listening to the story or, or watching the, the film or, or reading the story. Conflict is a, is a basic part. If there's no conflict, there's, there's simply no reason to continue the story. We need to have a reason to, to keep listening. So even the most innocuous story in the world has some form of conflict, some form of tension in it. So let's take the story of Cinderella. You already know the story of Cinderella, so it's an easy one. When you think of Cinderella, you probably don't think of conflict, but the basic element of a plot is there. There is conflict in Cinderella. We as an audience know that Cinderella is this, this beacon of virtue, and yet her circumstances have left her as basically a slave to her stepmother and her stepsisters. And the conflict for us, the tension, is that we know that she shouldn't be there. She's the good guy. She should be thriving. And yet she is suffering, and the bad guys, her, her stepsisters and her stepmother, they are thriving. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to rehearse the whole plot of Cinderella for you this morning. But the essential point is that there is tension there. There's conflict there. We want Cinderella to succeed. And at the outset, she is not succeeding. So we want to keep listening to the story to see how it's going to resolve in the end, right? This is why we keep listening to these stories. And, of course, the plot of Cinderella is not going to disappoint us. Through the intervention of her fairy godmother, she ends up winning the heart of this handsome prince who we are led to assume has uh, likewise virtuous character and is therefore a, a good match for Cinderella herself. They get together, and just before the credits roll, the old familiar line is played, and they lived happily ever after. At this point, the conflict is resolved, everything is nicely wrapped up, and we can hand the story on to the next generation of children. Anything after this point, any details after and they lived happily ever after are just superfluous. They're unnecessary. There's no point in reading on. There's no point to continuing the story after that point. Everything is neatly wrapped up. There is no more conflict. Therefore, there is no reason to keep 
hearing the story. Now, for some of us, the Sunday after Easter might feel a little bit like that. It might feel a little bit like a, an unnecessary intrusion, an, an add-on to a story that has already ended well. In, this, in the story of Jesus, we've already reached the, the climax of conflict as Jesus died on the cross. And then on Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resolution of that as God raises Jesus to new life. And we think, okay, that story is marked with and that he lived happily ever after. In the story of Jesus, Easter is kind of that moment, happily ever after. So what do we do now? What do we do this Sunday after Easter? This is a terribly important question for the Christian church. What comes after Easter in the story of Jesus? What comes after happily ever after in Jesus' life? And if we can't find a satisfactory answer to this question, we will either find ourselves kind of sitting on our porch in a rocking chair waiting for the return of Jesus, or on the other hand, kind of fooling ourselves into thinking that right now is the period of happily ever after, and our only task is to sit here and enjoy life. If we can't answer the question of what happens after Jesus in a compelling way, then as a church, perhaps the best thing we can do is to take a break until Christmas and then pick up the story of Jesus again. But of course, that won't do, because what am I going to do on a Sunday morning if there's no church? This is my job. So let's see if we can find an answer to this question. Easter has come and gone. Now what? We're going to be looking at at, uh, Peter's first sermon after the resurrection of Jesus on Pentecost Day. This is found in Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at the second half of that that sermon, verses 22 through 39. And I invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already done so. Now we're going to look at this sermon in two different parts. First, we're going to say, okay, what has God done? And then, of course, the really important question, okay, what do we do with that? So what has God done, and then what on earth do we do with that? We've got to start off with what has God done. Peter is preaching Christ to a crowd that is mostly made up of Jews in Jerusalem. His, uh, God has just poured out his Holy Spirit and empowered the apostles to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter wants this crowd to know just who Jesus really is. We're going to... Uh, Peter's going to highlight for us the, the four kind of key moments of Jesus' ministry. We're going to see his, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So we're going to get a quick recap of the ministry of Jesus. And in all of these, I want you to see it. I'm going to alert you to this right now. As we move through these, the one thing I want you to see is that God is the ultimate agent here. As Peter is preaching his sermon, the one thing he wants you to know is that God is the one who is behind all of this. So listen as Peter tells a recap of the story of Jesus, beginning in Acts 2, chapter 20, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 22. Peter says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So even in that first verse, do you see how Peter is highlighting that this is the activity of God? God accredited Jesus to you. I really like how the New Living Translation has that. It's God publicly endorsed Jesus through these miracles and signs and wonders. 
That's the sense here. God did these things. And notice also that Peter is calling the crowd as witnesses. He's saying, listen, you saw Jesus do these things. You know that the power of God had to be there for Jesus to be able to do these things. In short, Jesus' life showed that God's power was in him. Verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God's hand was central in the life of Jesus. And God's hand is even central in the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus was part of God's deliberate plan. God knew this was going to happen. This isn't something foreign that was pushed onto Jesus. This was the plan of God from the beginning. God knew this was going to happen. And at the, at the same time, this crowd is not innocent. Peter still shows that they played a part in this. You put him to death on the cross. So we see that the death of Jesus showed God's plan through him. But the story continues, verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God was the actor behind Jesus' miracles. It was God's plan that included Jesus' death. And it is God who raises Jesus from the dead. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, all of these show the hand of God in his life. And Peter wants these Jews who are hearing him to know that the resurrection of Jesus marks him as the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. That's the point he's going to make in these next verses. Listen uh, to his argument here, starting in verse 25. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Let me just quickly summarize the argument there. Peter's saying that David spoke back in Psalm 16 about God's holy one not seeing decay, his his body not decomposing. And yet David himself, Peter says, is buried. They, They know he's buried right here near Jerusalem. That means that his body is now decaying. That means that David must have been speaking about someone else. Specifically, he was talking about the Messiah. So Peter says that David was prophesying about the resurrection of the Messiah. And the point Peter's making is that, listen, if Jesus was raised from death, if he was resurrected, and David had prophesied that the Messiah would be resurrected, that means that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the crucial point here. The resurrection of Jesus showed that Jesus was God's promised Messiah. 
But the resurrection is not the end of the story. We continue in Peter's sermon, the very beginning of verse 33, the fourth and final element of Jesus' ministry here. Exalted to the right hand of God. We're going to pause there for just a second. We'll read the rest of the verse, but exalted to the right hand of God. This is an indicator that Jesus was ascended. This is about the ascension of Jesus. Luke describes in the the opening verses of Acts 1 that, that Chris read earlier that Jesus was taken up before the apostles. And this is the final piece to the ministry of Jesus. He lived, he died, he rose from death, and then he ascended. That means he's now at the right hand of God the Father. And this is what that means. Let's finish that verse 33 to the end of the sermon. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So from his position, from his ascended position, as he's sitting on, at the right hand of God the Father, ruling, he has poured out the Holy Spirit on his people, which is why the apostles were empowered to proclaim the message of Jesus in Jerusalem, and, and everyone from all these different language groups heard the message of Jesus in their own language. It's the power of the Holy Spirit coming on them that makes that possible. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is incredibly good news for us. But more on that in a moment. For now, it's important to see what the ascension means for Jesus. Because that's the focus right here. The focus is on who Jesus is. Look again at verse 36. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It's the ascension of Jesus that shows God's ultimate approval of him. It is the ascension of Jesus that inaugurates his reign as king over the whole cosmos. The ascension of Jesus is like the the crowning piece that, that fully and finally identifies him as God's chosen king, sovereign over the universe. All of the other pieces in Jesus' ministry are are building to this point. This is the, the crowning piece, the height. So Jesus' life showed that God's power was in him. Jesus' death showed that God's plan was working through him. Jesus' resurrection marks him as God's chosen Messiah. And Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father inaugurates his reign and says that today Jesus is king. All of it is building to this point. God is reclaiming the world through this man, Jesus. And the ascension means that he is reigning in power at the right hand of God. It's like Peter saying to these people in the crowd, in case you hadn't noticed it, God is doing some amazing things among you. And it's centered right here on this person. It's centered on Jesus. Jesus is king. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Let's do a little mind experiment to think this through. Imagine that you are living in a strong, fortified city. 
This is a, a fortress kind of a city. It's built for defense. The walls are tall, they're thick, they're strong. All the entry points are reinforced. There are specific, specifically trained guards who are uh, uh, defense guards. They know how to defend a city. No one is going to get into this city. And because you live here, you feel absolutely secure. Nothing is going to shake you. One day you hear of an attack. An enemy has come to your wall and is trying to get in. An enemy is on the offensive. But of course you're not too concerned because other enemies have come into the city and everyone else has failed. So you continue your life as normal. Nothing has changed for you. You are confident in these defenses. But then the report comes back that the enemy seems to be making progress. The enemy seems to have found a way to infiltrate the city. This enemy seems to be able to overcome with ease those strong defenses you have set up. Those on the front line are sending the message back to you in the city that you'd better be prepared because the enemy is winning. You'd better be prepared because an onslaught is coming. Those thick walls of defense are our human attempts to guard against God. We are trying to live apart from the truth that God is our king, that he is sovereign. So we build these defenses. The enemy then, who is on the defensive, is God himself. And Peter is the one at the front line preparing us. He's saying, listen, God has done something here. Be ready because the truth that Jesus is king, the truth that God is reclaiming the world, that's going to hit you in a moment here. You'd better be prepared because Jesus is king. That's going to totally shake up your life. And so we've passed Christmas, we've passed Good Friday, we've passed Easter, and we've come to the ascension of Jesus. The ascension means that Jesus reigns as king. And that reality is going to totally shake who we are. It's going to shake us to the core, demand a complete change of who we are. Jesus is king. What do we do with that information? Peter's going to give us four commands to guide us in the right direction here. We've already heard two of them. The first of them was at the very beginning of where we picked up in his sermon. Verse 22. He's starting off by saying, fellow Israelites, listen to this. It's a very simple starting point. Hear. Hear the message. God's work to reclaim us as his people starts with our ears. It starts with hearing the message. Peter says, hear this. And then he tells the story of Jesus. He lived by God's power. He died according to God's plan. He was raised as God's Messiah. And he is now ascended and sits on the right hand of God as God's sovereign. The second builds on this. 36, the last verse we looked at. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. Or more simply, know this. Hear no, we must know the truth. It starts with our ears hearing and it moves to our minds knowing. Peter says, know this. And then he tells us the truth that God has made Jesus king over the entire universe. God's work to reclaim us starts with hearing and moves to knowing. And those who hear and know are affected powerfully. Look at the verse, verse 37 that that tells the response of the people to hearing this truth that Peter has proclaimed. 
When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter told the people to listen and they listened. Peter told the people to know and now they know. And the narrator graphically describes what happens. It's like the message stabbed them in the heart. It cut them to the very core of who they were. And so Peter tells them, okay, this is what you should do. Verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Hear, know. Repent, be baptized. God's work to reclaim us starts with our ears and our minds, and then it moves to our hearts. Repent. It moves to the core of our identity. Peter says, repent. Repent is an active word. It's a word that connotes real change, going from one direction to another direction. Not this anymore, but this. This is the future direction. It's a fundamental change in behavior, a change in the course of your life from one direction to a completely different direction. Repentance, it's a turning. It's an active word. Repentance is a change of our hearts. And then Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And we might think, well, that's kind of an odd thing for Peter to be building and building and suddenly he gets to this kind of ritual thing. We might think of baptism as just kind of one of these ritual things that we do. But in the context of what Peter's talking about, it's much more than that. If you hear the message, if you know the truth of the message, if you repent, if your heart is changed, then baptism is a fundamental identity shift. Baptism means that you are now marked by the reality that Jesus is Lord. Baptism means that your whole life is now different. You are identified as with Jesus. And Paul says, You have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Baptism isn't just a ritual thing. It's it's the declaration of Peter's core truth to our life. Baptism is saying, Jesus is my Lord. So the message starts with hearing with our ears, knowing the truth with our minds. And then it affects a crucial heart change. And now it has taken over every single aspect of our lives. And when this happens, God then gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter tells us. Jesus had told his apostles back before he was even crucified in in John 14 through 16 that the Spirit is the advocate. The Spirit is the guide. The Holy Spirit is how true change comes to our lives. It's how repentance and baptism actually occur. It's how they take root in this real change, this fundamental identity shift can happen. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit. Peter spoke these words to the first Jewish Christians. Verse 39. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. See, this is a promise that starts with the nation of Israel and it goes further than that. And it expands to include all of humanity. This is the promise for you and I. This is the promise for us, for our world. God is on the offensive. 3,000 of those who heard Peter's message at Pentecost 
became followers of Jesus Christ. These became some of the first Christians. And now God turns his offensive on you and on me. God is reclaiming you through Jesus Christ. The one thing that Peter is pushing for in this sermon, the one thing he wants us to know is that God has made Jesus Lord, Messiah, King. And the one thing he wants you to do with that information is to apply to your life, to make Jesus your Lord, Messiah, King. And really, if, if what Peter is saying is true, this is the only way that makes sense to live. If God has indeed made Jesus king, it means that Jesus is king. And living in denial of that, not accepting that reality, would simply be foolish. Today is April 15th. It's traditionally tax day. And on any day of the year, tax day is probably the day that teaches us the wisdom of living according to reality. The reality is that the United States government has a right, because we live here, to tax us. You can deny the legitimacy of that. You can live as if it is not true. And maybe for a while you'll be fine. But to deny the existence and legitimacy of taxes will one day, probably quickly, prove to be a fairly foolish move. The day of reckoning will come. We might try to live as if Jesus is not, in fact, king, but that is a futile attempt. Because the truth is, the reality is that Jesus is king. He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He is now enthroned as king over the entire universe. The only life that makes sense now is to accept Jesus as Lord, to actually live out that reality, to live under Jesus' kingship, to hear, to know, to repent, to be baptized, to live with Jesus as your Lord. For those of us who have been Christians for a long time, for who who have been in the church for a long time, the temptation for us is to think that this is a message that's only for non-Christians. They need to hear. They need to repent. They need to change. And that's true that those who do not yet acknowledge Jesus as Lord do need to do so. They need to hear this message. They need to know it's truth. They do need to repent. They do need to live with Jesus as Lord. But the truth that Jesus is Lord is a truth that must change the lives of Christians too every day. The claim that Jesus is Lord is the most far-reaching claim possible. This is a proclamation that plays into every single aspect of our lives from the, the deepest core convictions that we have to the most mundane elements of daily life. Jesus is Lord means that there is no other Lord. So for us as a church, the fact that Jesus is Lord means that there are no other Lords. It means that I am not the Lord of this church. It means the elders are not Lords of this church. Congregation members are not Lords of this church. No, Jesus is Lord, and that means all of us together are living under that reality, living together under the truth that Jesus is our one Lord. 
And that means that our decision-making, our direction, our desires, our focus, all of those must be shaped and determined by the truth that Jesus is our Lord. I am not arguing for my preferences. I am trying to follow the truth that Jesus is Lord and follow that guidance as we live together as a church. Jesus is Lord means in your home that you are not Lord. And this works wherever you fit in the family. You could be father, mother, husband, wife, oldest child, middle child, youngest child. You are not Lord of your family. Your entire family is to live together under the truth that Jesus is Lord. And that means that the way your family spends its time is directed by that truth. The way your family spends its money is directed by that truth. The things that your family values are directed by the truth that Jesus is Lord. Now, as with the church, I'm not suggesting that all leadership roles are null and void, but it reshapes what those leadership roles look like. If Jesus is Lord, I in my home am not pressing for my own desires, my own preferences. I in my home am leading under the reality that Jesus is Lord. It fundamentally changes how I view that. I am not king in my own home. Jesus is king in my home. And Jesus is Lord means that even in your own personal life, you are not your own Lord. Your personal time, your personal money, your expression of sexuality, your philosophy, your politics, your future goals, your dreams, your aspirations, your desires, everything you have, everything you are is determined, shaped by the truth that Jesus is your Lord. Paul summarizes for us very nicely. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Jesus is Lord. Jesus reigns as king. Everything in your life must be directed around that truth. Everything in your life is determined and shaped by the truth that Jesus is your king. Now, at first glance, this might seem like a pretty heavy burden to be bearing. But there are two things that relieve us of seeing this as putting undue pressure on our lives. The first is that simply that this brings unity to otherwise disjointed lives. I mean, think about all the things that are pulling you in different directions in your life. Your work is pulling you in a direction. Your family is pulling you in a direction. Your friends are pulling you in a direction. Your entertainment choices are pulling you in a direction. Your need for sleep is pulling back in a different direction. Your financial situation is pulling in a different direction. All of these things are drawing your attention in different directions. The whole thing is chaos if there's nothing that can make sense of that. The truth that Jesus is Lord gives you a clear central point. It gives you a point of meaning by which everything else can come together and make sense. The one thing we need to know is that Jesus is Lord. And when that place, when that peace is put in place, the rest of reality makes sense. Everything else is clamoring to be Lord over you, to, to be your king, to be the thing that drives your actions and your decisions and who you are. And yet none of those things is supposed to take that place. The one thing that's going to shape your life in a way that makes sense is to have Jesus as your king. The other thing that 
shows that Jesus is Lord is not a burden is the gift that Peter mentions, the gift of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples the truth. He says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. God sends his Holy Spirit into our lives to direct our lives around the truth that Jesus is king. The Holy Spirit is the great gift that makes this possible. This is not a message of try harder. This is a message of hear, know, repent, turn, be marked in baptism as a child of Jesus. God will send his Holy Spirit to make this possible. He will give you life. And don't miss the result of that from John 14. And then we will have peace. Peace I live with, I leave with you. So in the story of Jesus, we have reached in some sense the happily ever after moment. And then today we learn that we are just getting started because this now is the crucial piece. This is our opportunity as a church to live under the reality that Jesus really is our king. We're just getting started. We can't take a break until Christmas to take up the story of Jesus again because Jesus is now reigning as king and we as his people are to proclaim that message to the world that needs to hear it. The proclamation that Jesus is Lord makes an incredible demand on your life. It means that for us, Jesus is absolutely everything. There is no single aspect or part of your life that is not changed by the fact that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord and that changes everything. But that is not an oppressive demand because God empowers us for this reality. He empowers us to live this way. He sends his Holy Spirit so that the truth that Jesus now reigns as ascended king can be a liberating, joy-filled truth. Jesus is king. You and I can now have life. May it be so for us. Please pray with me. Father, in your grace, shape us by the story of Jesus, our Savior, crucified, raised to life, ascended, reigning as king over the universe. May that reality shape us more and more. May that reality be the driving force of our lives, the one thing that makes sense of everything else, the one thing that will give us your peace. We pray this in his name. Amen.